Well, hello and welcome to H2 Tech Talk, the podcast series from H2 Tech, the new hydrogen technology journal from Gulf Energy Information. I'm Adrian Bloom, Editor-in-Chief of H2 Tech and your host for H2 Tech Talk. So this week we'll be talking with Beth Carter, Senior Business Manager for Clean Hydrogen Initiative at Honeywell UOP. And before we get started with the discussion, I'd like to remind you to share and subscribe to the H2 Talk podcast for more expert discussions on technology and trends in the hydrogen sector. It's easy to do. Just click the subscribe button on iTunes or Blueberry. So now before we begin, I'll ask Beth to introduce herself and her role at Honeywell UOP. Beth? Yeah, thanks, Adrian. First of all, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Um, Let me start by way of introduction, introducing Honeywell UOP. So we are a supplier and um, licensor of process technology, catalyst, and adsorbents um, to the petroleum industry, the petrochemical industry, and the gas industry. Um, So my role at Honeywell UOP, as you said, I'm the senior business manager of our clean hydrogen portfolio. Um, So in that role, I'm driving the commercialization of our hydrogen and carbon capture technologies to support the use of hydrogen as a clean energy vector. Um, I'm a chemical engineer. Um, and I've spent most of my career in the R&D organization at UOP doing um, novel chemical process design and optimization. Um, and, and carbon capture is one of the really fun projects I got to work on in R&D. Um, and now I'm, I'm excited to be on the more commercial side of our business, going out and talking with customers about their sustainability plans and um, how technology might help meet those plans. Hey, that, great, Beth. Thank you. That That's very interesting. So, um, to kind of launch into uh, some some discussion topics here. So tell me about the, some of the technologies and projects that um, Honeywell UOP is working on in the hydrogen space, uh, particularly with regard to low carbon hydrogen production. Um, and, you know, do you see this as a, as a growing part of your business going forward? Yeah, so sustainable technologies in general are certainly a growing part of our business. Um, You know, more than 50% of our R&D investments now are directed towards products that um, are sustainability focused. Um, We launched a new business line last year actually called Sustainable Technology Solutions, looking at um, breakthrough energy storage, renewable fuels, advanced plastics recycling. Um, And a a fourth part of that is carbon capture and clean hydrogen. Um, And and that's the one um, I'm personally most excited about um, because UOP has been providing um, hydrogen technologies, um, pressure swing adsorption for purification of hydrogen and also um, gas processing technologies, um, solvent systems, membrane systems, adsorbent systems, cryogenic systems um, for removing carbon dioxide from process streams. Um, So this technology has been an important part of our business for a long time. Um, But now it's just a a slight reapplication of these same technologies in in a completely new vector, um, using clean hydrogen to enable the energy transition. Um, So that's really exciting. Um, In terms of projects, um, we had an announcement this week actually about a big clean hydrogen project that we're involved in um, in Indiana. Um, Mm -hmm. So this one we're really excited about, Wabash Valley Resources um, is repurposing a clean coal gasifier in Indiana for clean hydrogen production. Mm -hmm. Um, And they will be using our cryogenic CO2 fractionation technology for doing the actual carbon capture portion of that project. 
Um, so we're really excited about that one. Um, but we're working on a number of other blue hydrogen projects, um, including just, you know, consulting with customers about how blue hydrogen might fit in with their long-term sustainability goals. Mm -hmm. um, you know, our, our, um, our focus right this second is on blue hydrogen. Um, but, but one thing that really excites me about hydrogen um, is that it's not just blue hydrogen production and green hydrogen production. It's um, hydrogen transportation and hydrogen end use, and, and those sectors are going to grow over time as well. So um, we at UOP, we're using our um, materials and catalyst and process design expertise on a number of other kind of hydrogen economy related technologies. So um, liquid organic hydrogen carriers, the materials that go into electrolyzers, um, point of use hydrogen separation, um, and a number of other areas as well. So um, yes, we certainly see this as an exciting growth area. Wow, yeah, certainly seeing a lot of different uh, interest in, in many different applications for hydrogen. So um, it's exciting to hear that, you know, Honeywell UOP is also involved in many of those areas as well. So um, another thing I want to ask you about, so uh, as a sneak peek into the uh, second quarter issue of the H2 Tech Journal, which will be published in May, we're featuring an article by Honeywell UOP, which is co-authored by yourself on blue hydrogen technology as a ready now decarbonization solution. So in this article, you state that greater development of carbon capture infrastructure is needed along with blue hydrogen and other carbon capture and storage projects to make blue hydrogen successful. So my questions are, where and how will this carbon capture infrastructure come about and what specific types of infrastructure and projects will be needed um, in what world regions and local areas to encourage blue hydrogen? Yeah, so um, the, the thing about carbon capture and storage is that um, it's not new. Um, it's been going on since the 1970s for enhanced oil recovery and since, I think, 1996 for permanent sequestration underground. There's almost 30 facilities operating worldwide. Um, they're mostly in North America, um, but also the North Sea in Europe and um, some projects in the Middle East and a big project in Brazil and a big project in Australia as well. So um, this already is happening around the world. Um, but in terms of what's going to be needed to make this um, a really important technology going forward, um, I think there are a number of requirements um, and, and they all have to do with, with different types of infrastructure. So I would say the first is technology infrastructure. Um, and, and we're pretty good there. We understand and have developed the technologies that are needed for carbon capture and carbon transportation and carbon sequestration. Mm -hmm. um, the second thing is financial infrastructure. Um, there needs to be a price on carbon to incentivize these types mm -hmm. of investments. Um, we're seeing this happen in, in some places in the world. So for example, in the United States, we have the 45Q federal tax credit. Mm -hmm. It can provide up to $50 a metric ton of carbon. Um, in Europe, we have the emissions trading system where the, the carbon allowances are also trading for about $50 a metric ton. Um, so, so the financial infrastructure is required um, and it's also developing in some places in the world. Um, and then I would say the physical infrastructure. So by that, I mean the pipelines and the wells themselves. Um, so in order for this to um, continue to grow, really what needs to happen is the sources of carbon dioxide and the sinks, the sequestration sites 
uh, need to come together in a way that's economic. Um, so, you know, there, there's a number of projects that are developing around the world. I would say um, I'm most excited about the large cluster projects that are happening in Europe. So mm -hmm. uh, Northern Lights, the Northern Endurance Partnership, this is where um, a number of entities are coming together to have projects where um, economy of scale comes in to, to help um, drive the economics of, of these projects. Mm -hmm. um, and then finally, I would say the, the regulatory and legal infrastructure. Um, and, and again, um, everywhere in the world needs to make progress on this, but I would say probably the United States and Europe, again, are, are the farthest along in terms mm -hmm. of um, permitting processes and, and defining who has the legal liabilities associated with carbon capture. Um, mm -hmm. but, but those are the things that need to happen. Okay, interesting. Um, so I want to ask you another question about uh, so your article. So you also discuss in that article a number of different methods for emissions reduction of up to 60% from existing conventional steam methane reforming units, um, as well as carbon capture of up to 90% through SMR revamps or new units. So in your opinion, which methods provide the best balance of cost effectiveness and carbon capture efficiency to decarbonize the SMR process for um, A, existing units, and B, new assets, um, and why? Um, okay, so this is actually a, a bit of a technical question. So let me explain first um, the 60% number and the 90% number and, and why people talk about those numbers associated with uh, low carbon hydrogen production. Mm -hmm. um, so the conventional way of making hydrogen in a steam methane reformer, um, the, the natural gas and steam go through a steam methane reforming furnace where it's converted to syngas. Um, the syngas comprises of hydrogen, carbon monoxide, um, carbon dioxide, and some unconverted methane. Um, and then it's shifted to produce more hydrogen out of the CO. Um, and then it's typically sent to a hydrogen PSA where, where the high purity hydrogen is recovered as the product. Um, and then the CO2 that was in the syngas um, it becomes part of the PSA tail gas, which is becomes fuel to the burners of the steam methane reforming furnace. Mm -hmm. um, so steam methane reforming is, is very endothermic, so it requires heat for the reaction. So that comes from the PSA tail gas and a supplemental natural gas stream. Um, so if you take a steam methane reformer, a conventional installed asset, approximately 60% of the carbon dioxide that's associated with the hydrogen production is available in the syngas and approximately 40% of it is available in the flue gas. Um, and when you look at the costs of capturing carbon from either what's called a pre-combustion stream, so that could be the syngas or the PSA tail gas, um, it's much less expensive than going after the um, carbon dioxide that's available in the flue gas. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I guess in terms of which one's best, um, it really depends on um, the projects and the target of the project. So I would say for, um, let's say a refiner with an existing hydrogen asset, um, adding on a retrofit to go after the pre-combustion carbon dioxide where you can get 60% of it, um, that would make a significant step in, in carbon reduction for that refiner um, at a relatively inexpensive cost. So I would mm -hmm. say there's certainly a role for those types of projects. Um, but there's also a role for, for projects where you want 90 or even more percent carbon capture. Um, so mm -hmm. there's a few ways of doing that. Um, actually, probably the best way of doing it is to shift the carbon dioxide that's in a flue gas into a pre-combustion stream. 
Um, and that can be done by modifying the way the steam methane reformer um, is operated, running it at high conversion, shifting the radiant duty to a pre or post reformer. There's a number of changes that you can make to a, a steam methane reformer to shift the carbon dioxide um, or using a different technology like autothermal reforming or gasification. Mm -hmm. um, all of these are options for enabling 90% carbon capture in a pre-combustion stream. Um, and I see a role for projects like that as well. Um, so for example, um, you know, new plants to enable hydrogen valleys that are going to use hydrogen as a clean energy vector across different sectors. Um, those types of projects are going to want very high levels of carbon dioxide removal, um, really to compete with green hydrogen. Um, or, you know, operators building new renewable fuels units where they want very low carbon intensity fuels. Um, mm -hmm. Those are some other examples where we're driving to 90% carbon capture makes sense. Okay, interesting, interesting. So that being said, you know, what other considerations do you look for with, with the best decarbonization methods, you know, other than percentage of emissions reductions? Yeah, so there's some other factors to consider. I would say, um, what is the carbon dioxide going to be used for after it's captured? Um, and what is the hydrogen going to be used for? Um, those are both really important considerations in which technology is best for doing carbon capture mm -hmm. in blue hydrogen production. So, um, for example, um, Cryogenic fractionation is one of the types of technologies that can be used for doing carbon capture from a steam methane reformer. Um, and the advantages of it are um, you can recover an extra 10 to 20% of hydrogen from your steam methane reformer. Um, you can get a, a high purity liquid product. Um, so it can be used, for example, in the food and beverage industry. Mm -hmm. um, and the utility consumption is electric, so it can drive really low overall carbon intensity because there's no steam associated with it. So, you know, for, for those types of projects where, where high purity carbon dioxide is needed, it needs to be a liquid and there's a value on extra hydrogen, um, cryogenic makes sense. Um, but there's a number of other technologies as well when maybe high purity CO2 isn't needed, liquid mm -hmm. CO2 isn't needed, um, perhaps there, there's no advantage for having extra hydrogen recovery. And that's where technologies like um, PSA or solvent systems may make more sense. Okay, I see, interesting. So um, you're talking a little bit more about uh, the future of, of hydrogen, uh, the hydrogen sector. So with production costs for, for green and very low carbon hydrogen production expected to come down over the next two decades as electrolyzer costs decrease um, and uh, renewable power availability um, increases, especially cheap renewable power availability. Um, do you see blue hydrogen technology continuing to feed overall clean energy demand? Or do you think it's going to be mainly used within industry as decarbonization and process gas supply solution? Hmm. Well, no one has a crystal ball, but um, I would say I see a role for both blue and green hydrogen going forward. Mm -hmm. um, and th there's a few reasons why I say that. Um, first of all, the life cycle carbon intensity of blue hydrogen can rival or even in some cases be lower than that of green hydrogen. Um, second, there's, there's places in the world where um, green hydrogen will never be cheap um, because the price of green hydrogen is very dependent on the price of renewable power. And so in places in the world where renewable power is not 
on stream for, for a, a high percentage of the time, um, green hydrogen will continue to be really expensive. Mm -hmm. um, and you, know, you, you could combat that by shipping the hydrogen long distances, um, but that is also expensive. So um, because of that, I think there will be regions in the world where blue hydrogen continues to be the best option, even after the cost of electrolysis comes down significantly from where it is today. Mm -hmm. um, and then the third thing is we have a huge installed asset base of steam methane reformers in the world. Um, and for, you know, you can do a, a relatively simple, relatively inexpensive retrofit of all of those existing assets and allow those existing assets to play a role in, in decarbonization. Um, you know, I, I think that's going to be an, an important factor in the, the blue versus green question as well. Certainly. Okay, interesting. Well, Beth, I want to thank you for sharing these insights with the H2 Tech audience. That was a, that was a very interesting conversation. And um, I would like to uh, remind the audience that if you guys enjoyed this episode, please remember to share and subscribe to the H2 Tech Talk podcast on iTunes and Blueberry. And again, thanks so much, Beth, for being our guest on the show. Thanks a lot for having me.